You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science. Coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash TWOH. You are listening to This World of Humans. I'm Sam Anderson, your producer. And for today, I'll also be your host. Where is Nathan Lentz, you might ask? Where is that witty and erudite biologist who we can always count on to bring us fascinating interviews and world-class science? Well, he's right here beside me. Today, Nathan will be sitting in the guest chair, because on this episode of This World of Humans, we're doing something a bit different. I'll be your host, and Nathan is my guest. And the reason we're doing this is because Nathan has just published his second book. It's called Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. Today, we're going to talk about all the things in our bodies that are broken, flawed, and just plain silly when it comes to design. So if you thought that our bodies are evolutionary perfection, well, sorry, but you're wrong. This couldn't be further from the truth, and we'll get to that in just a second. The book is getting great reviews in all sorts of media like the London Times and the Express, and the best thing about this book, at least to a journalist like myself, is that it's just plain well-written. Um, it's funny, it's entertaining, it's all the things you want in a science book. So let's get right into it. You ready, Nathan? I am ready. All right. First off, welcome to This World of Humans. Thank you. It's fun being in this chair. It's, uh, it's a different side of things. I'm ready. Yeah. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. All right. We'll see. <laughs> so I think we should start with the fact that whether we realize it or not as humans, we have this tendency to sort of hype up the human race. Um, we're at the top of the food chain. We've conquered all the continents. We've got these ridiculously powerful brains. And most of us don't really see ourselves as part of an evolutionary process anymore. We created civilization and we made all of this progress. And now we're sort of like beyond that primitive animal stuff. Um, but you're saying the opposite, that humans are actually pretty flawed. Or at the very least, we are creatures of evolution. In the process of evolution itself, it's very flawed. So my first question is, what is it about the process of evolution that makes it so prone to errors? Well, um, evolution is about compromises and trade-offs and being uh, a species just has to be good enough to survive. Uh, and, and, and by the way, a lot of it comes down to luck as well. I mean, mm. some species thrive and others don't simply because of chance. Uh, and, and I think that was a big realization in the 50s and 60s that how what a big role that just chance and random uh, forces play. The, the expectations that humans are this pinnacle of creation is a is a bias that really should have died with creationism. Hmm. Um, when I mean, we've really been thinking about the uh, about our our species and about the world in evolutionary terms for a good 150 years. Right. But there's really two areas of uh, two aspects of creationism that we just seem to not be able to shake. One of them is human exceptionalism, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That humans right. really are just different and these forces don't really apply to us. That's that's one. But the other one is the idea that evolution creates perfectly adapted species, that every species is just perfectly suited for its environment. And that's just not the case. Um, it, it, it couldn't even theoretically be the case. And, and one basic problem is that the environment's always changing anyway. We, mm-hmm. we think of a static world because we think of, of time scales of decades. But species exist for millions of years, and they never exist in the same place and time and and conditions for very long. Everything's changing. So it's a race to just keep up with with a changing world. One way to put it, and and, uh, this is sometimes called the Red Queen hypothesis, is that you're like running on a treadmill, Mm -hmm. right? You're always moving 
but you're not moving at all. It's just to stay in the same place. So you have right, to keep right, working right. really hard or else you fall off the treadmill. Like but, it's so hard to just stay alive. Exactly. To keep a species going that you're never going to really move that much further exactly right it's just about barely barely out uh competing your competitors your infectious diseases your pre- your predator or prey whatever um yeah so it, it doesn't produce perfection that's that's the key point gotcha and so in your first chapter you have a section on the human eye which um to me as a non-scientist really seems like one of the most impressive features of our bodies we can see light and we see all these colors and and it's like we use this every single day of our lives at least for people with with working eyes so it's like you know, but according to your book, this really isn't true at all, right? Well, the idea of an eye as capturing uh, electromagnetic radiation and turning it into signals in the brain, that really is pretty special. My point is that the human eye of all the eyes on the planet isn't really particularly well built. Uh, there are a few pretty glaring defects in the human eye. We don't see as wide of a spectrum as some other creatures. Our retinas really... Uh, all vertebrates are retinas basically backwards uh, installed and we've and we've done a good job with this backwards installation i mean we've adapted to it yeah what do you mean what do you mean by that how is it installed backwards well the photoreceptors which are the actual points that capture the light they face inward not outward so they're really oriented as if they were as if they were looking for something deep in your head rather than looking something huh. for something so that's they're coming they're facing in. towards the brain rather than away from the brain exactly right picture a microphone just facing the wrong way. <laughs> and uh, we know that, that it doesn't have to be that way because cephalopods, which are squids and, and octopi, they have uh, retinas which are faced the, the proper way. Mm. Um, and it was sort of a flip of the coin. It could have developed one way or the other, and it didn't really have any negative consequences early in the development, in the early evolution. So that's why it went one way or the other randomly. Mm. Um, but once you have it, you're stuck with it. And that's what I sort of mean by compromises and trade-offs. The, uh, the mutations that would be required to flip that retina around are just unimaginable. It's probably not possible. Yeah. And so you, what evolution does instead is work with what we have and make little tweaks and tugs to make the best of it. And, gotcha. and I think that's the best way to say it is we make the best of it. <laughs> and is, is, that, um, is that normal throughout some of the human errors that you outlined in your book, this idea of like it happened and now we're going to deal with it and and it's kind of difficult to reverse a process i think i think that captures a lot of it yeah i i basically talk about three categories of flaws one of them is precisely that what we would say compromises and trade-offs and um, it just happened and we then we do the best we can but another category of our flaws uh, and some people bristle when we call them flaws are that we are adapted to a world that we no longer live in so it some of these quirks about us actually made sense in our deep past and uh-huh. we now have created a very different world than the than the pleistocene epoch savanna flatlands of uh, of right. sub-saharan africa we don't live that way anymore so um so so th- so calling those flaws some people don't quite like it i just i mean that they're maladaptations at least as we live now gotcha. but then there's a third category which really Defy, I say they defy all explanation. They just don't make any sense whatsoever. There's nothing gained. There's no trade-off. There's no, oh, it used to be fine. It's just really sort of bad plumbing, bad wiring, bad, mm-hmm. um, which hasn't killed us enough to have it be corrected. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, you have to die in order to take bad mutations with you. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, at another point in the book, you say that the whole neck is a bit of a disaster. Is it really that bad? Well, think about it. What plumber would have the same 
pipe be used for two different, totally different systems. So an inflow outflow kind of situation. So we have the same pipe, that's our throat, which is sometimes called the pharynx, which conveys both food and, and water, of course, and air. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's not great design. And in fact, we know uh, many other creatures have better designs than that. And if, yeah. you, if you've ever seen a bird swallow like a really big fish, it takes them a couple of minutes to get it down and it's in their throat. And you're thinking, how are they breathing? Well, because their nostrils go directly to their lungs. Their nostrils okay. don't join the throat like ours does. So they're able to breathe the whole time they're working down that big fish. And the same thing with like snakes and all reptiles and mm -hmm. birds basically have a more efficient way of separating air from, uh, you know, food and water. And by the way, there are mammals too. The, the dolphins and whales have a big blowhole on their back, right? And that, that is a clear path to their, to their lungs that doesn't really have to, they, so they don't choke uh, right. on their food so much. Bad plumbing seems to come up uh, yeah. more than once. What is another example of like bad plumbing? The sinuses, right? That's like a pretty obvious one. Yeah, that's a pretty obvious one. So our largest uh, sinus cavities are in our cheekbones, right behind our cheekbones. And what the sinus cavities are designed to do is warm up the air, humidify it, but also um, purify it a little bit. So we have mucus in there that sort of stuff sticks to that. And we have little hair-like uh, projections called cilia. That, that's all designed to sort of clean the air, filter it a little bit before it gets down to our lungs. Well, what happens is there's a, that mucus has to flow. So mm -hmm. it's not just sitting there, right? Mucus is secreted somewhere and then drains somewhere else. It's like a slow waterfall. Right. That's designed to capture anything that falls in it and take it. And, and by the way, it sends it to your stomach mm -hmm. uh, because your stomach is a safe place to send all that stuff because it's got a, it's like an acid bath. It'll kill anything, pretty much anything that goes down there. But the sinuses in the face, the biggest cavities, um, the drainage spout, like the drain pipe, is at the top of the chamber, not huh. the not the bottom of the chamber the top of the chamber. And so what happens is your cilia, those little hairs I talked about, pushes the mucus upwards uh -huh. towards the drain pipe. And when you're healthy, there's not too much dust in the air or you know, allergies going on, it's okay. It can do the work. You know, it's, you we're not constantly having this, these symptoms, but it just doesn't take much to gum up the whole system. So mm -hmm. a lot of particulates, allergens, or of course, if you have a, a sinus infection or just even just a cold, then it slows everything down. The mucus right. gets thick, it gets viscous, and it will pool in the bottom. And that causes the infection to fester. And because now you're working against gravity. Right, right, right. And that's why we get so many colds, right? We get so many colds because the drainage is just not keeping up. And, and by the way, when you have a sinus infection, you'll probably notice when you lay down, you can get some temporary relief. Right. I was thinking about that. I was going to ask, like, if I stand on my head, is that, like, better for my sinuses? Um, really, I would just recommend laying down. It, uh -huh. You don't really need to totally invert because then you're going to cause problems in the, some of the other cavities. Mm -hmm. um, but if you just lay down, and that, by the way, gives you some hint to, to our evolutionary past is that really the upright standing is, is not so much mm. um, how we evolved for a long time. But, but really what happened was a rearrangement of the face and it just pure chance, one of those, those elements of just bad luck that the drainage pipe uh, ended up at the top because other apes, they have different arrangements. Uh, when they rearrange their faces, um, they have better drainage. And by the way, what I mean by re rearranging the face. So mammals are known for these long snouts and the earliest mammals. And in fact, most mammals have a long snout. Right. And the reason why is we concentrate all our odor receptors in that snout. Um, most mammals have exceptional senses of smell. 
because they have all these olfactory receptors. Well, primates sort of decided to, to shift, and we started to rely on vision instead of smell. Hmm. So to do that, we reduced our snout and sort of smushed it up into our face. Why? Because the snout's in the way, right? Yeah. The, the snout limits your vision. Dogs, you probably don't realize this, but a dog is actually looking at its snout. Most of its field of vision in both eyes is, is covered by that snout. So, yeah, so it's in the way. So if you're going to rely on vision, you don't want a snout. So we moved away from smell towards sound or towards sight, excuse me, vision, and we smushed up our, our snouts. Gotcha. Um, and that, of course, to do that, you have to rearrange the face. And we did that and we just didn't do it very well. Yeah. So I think one of my favorite examples in the book is the part on vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of biologists might know this, but I had no idea that pretty much every animal on earth produces vitamin C in their bodies. Yes. Except, except for humans, right? That's right. Uh, in the liver specifically, most animals uh, that are walking the planet today, um, it wouldn't even be called a vitamin for them because a vitamin by definition for us is that something we need to ingest. Right. It's just another cofactor, another molecule that's in their body that is performing a function. It would never be what we say clinically relevant. It mm-hmm. would just not, not really be an issue. Um, and what happened with primates, so the, one of the earliest ancestors of all primates um, the gene, one of the genes that's necessary uh, for an enzyme that's necessary to make vitamin C got mutated. And this is just a random event. It's right. just a lightning strike because mutations are always happening um, and they're usually bad uh, or, or neutral. Actually, most of them are neutral. But um, in this one, it happened to disable the gene, uh, one of the genes necessary for vitamin C. Well, it sh- that animal should have died. Why did it not get scurvy and die? Right. The answer is it was living in Africa, where citrus fruit and other sources of vitamin C are already there. So it was already eating a vitamin C-rich diet. Mm -hmm. So this mutation that normally would have killed it off, it just didn't kill it off. It had no effect. And then because of random chance, that particular species uh, happened to be a foundational species of the group of primates. So it had a lot of success in its its genetic legacy. I mean, all of us are here because that ancestor was so successful. Yeah. Um, but it's had a lot of negative consequences down the road. And that that's the problem is that evolution does not look far ahead. It right. does, there's no planning. It's not thinking generations ahead. It's just not how it works. So this, these poor primates, they flourished uh, where they could, but they were very limited. They could only live places that had vitamin C, sources of vitamin C around them. Right. Um, and and so that actually defined the area that humans could live, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, no primates ever lived on pretty much the entire continent of Europe until uh, human ancestors started to venture in there. Um, and they got scurvy when they did. And, and what around what time period was that, do you think? Do you have any idea? Um, so probably uh, we know that Neanderthals were there... Um, sort of 100,000 to, to 200,000 years ago mm-hmm. uh, were colonizing Europe. It almost certainly uh, suffered from scurvy when they did. Uh, modern humans really didn't enter Europe till about 35,000 years ago. And when they did, they encountered the Neanderthals. And as you know, within 5,000 years, the Neanderthals were gone. Um, but the, but the, the fact remains is that in Europe, scurvy was a major public health problem really all the way up until almost yeah, until modern times it still was a major problem un- until we figured out that we actually needed this vitamin right yeah that's right I mean, we had at one point in during the medieval period we figured out eat potatoes or limes or other things which by the way 
were not available. I mean, potatoes right. are not native to Europe. We always think of potatoes as, as Ireland, uh, from mm-hmm. Ireland, but no, potatoes are from the New World, and, and they were imported to Ireland. Um, so we had to, uh, we knew that th- this could cure this uh, illness, but we didn't know why, certainly, and we didn't know all the foods that could give it to you. So scurvy's been a major problem, and it's because of this this broken gene that we have. And that that is sometimes what we call these genes that have been rendered uh, inoperative. We call them right. broken genes or even pseudo genes, if you want to be technical. Uh, and it's not just that one. That one, that gene's called Gulo. Mm-hmm. We have thousands, tens of thousands of these broken genes. Yeah. And it's not even like we never had the gene. It's like we had this gene yes. and just it, it just doesn't work. That's right. We can almost make vitamin C. Yeah. We can almost we can come very close to make it, making vitamin C. Okay. Um. And and the other primates, of course, uh, you know, solve this problem with their diet as well. So the primates are obviously very successful. So this is a flaw only in the sense that it puts limits on us. Uh. But like your dog and your cat, they have no use for vitamin C. That's yeah. why they can have a very simple diet. That's one reason why. So um, another section of the book I want to highlight is your chapter on reproduction. Mm-hmm. And you start off with the obvious fact that reproduction is one of the most important things an individual organism can do. Ensuring the survival of our species is without a doubt the main goal of evolution, right? Right. And, and so here we are having survived pretty much everything evolution has thrown at us. And yet you say that humans have one of the most inefficient reproductive systems in the entire world. And then you go on to say it's not just one element or body part that's bad. It's like the entire system from the sperm and the eggs to our huge noggins. It's all rigged against us. So so what's going on there? Yeah, I'm, certainly before modern medicine, I would say that the morbidity, mortality that we suffer from from reproduction is higher than any other mammal. The um, And our rates of infertility seem to be higher, too. So even even getting to the point of becoming pregnant, most of the times you have sex, do not lead to pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and imagine if it did. Um, so the we're just really inefficient. And the, and the inefficiencies begin from the creation of gametes all the way through the birth of a healthy child. We have inefficiencies all along the way. Even the fact the the age at which we can reproduce is really late. Right. right. You have to be 14, 15 years old before you're fertile. That means 14 or 15 years in which you can be taken out of the gene pool before you ever had a chance. Right. So the number of individuals who just didn't make it to reproductive age was probably very high. So having a late late uh, maturity is, is one problem. But really, a lot of us can't make our gametes properly. Uh, we don't make enough of them or they're not the right um, you know, vigor. Um, also, um, a lot of embryos that are conceived are defective in, in, in one way or another. And I don't just mean undesirable by, by some uh, horrible eugenic standard. I mean, can't thrive. Mm. Most, uh, conception events do not lead to a healthy implanted embryo. Most conception events lead to some failure to thrive. And then there's also, even before conception, there are a lot of obstacles. Uh, exactly. So a lot, a lot of times, um, I mean, there's a reason why my men, for example, need hundreds of millions of sperm for one conception event to take place. It's because the sperm are going off in all crazy directions. They don't they don't have any homing device and the egg doesn't even have a propeller. Right. So the egg is just floating around aimlessly. Right. The sperm, you know, it, it, it really. And then these sperm, they have to make this long journey. Right. And in your book, you describe it as being like 3000 times the length of their body. I think it's a long trip and they travel. Yeah. They travel fast, but they're going in corkscrews. 
<laughs> right? right. So so that doesn't that's not efficient. They can only make left turns. Right? They can only make left turns. Right. So it's like it's a typical male, right, who's just gonna <laughs> drive around <laughs> aimlessly, hoping he finds his uh, yeah. his his his, his uh, homing point. But the th- the point is that that um, we've evolved for that. So of course, to say that we're inefficient in reproduction seems a little silly considering we have we're now on every continent in the planet right um but my point is that that was against some pretty long odds i think that uh, that we're an unlikely species to have thrived once we hit a critical point it was clear we were going to make it but we had a lot of lot of efficiencies in our past inefficiencies mm-hmm. that really could have brought us down at any point okay cool so um aside from what we talked about so far do you have a favorite human ever or one that's just like extra surprising or ridiculous well, um, I, I think one thing that's interesting um, about about the eyes, since you brought those up. So I don't know if you know the statistic, but something like 40% of the adults in the U.S., Canada, and, and Western Europe requires eyeglasses. 40%. Wow. And in, in certain Asian countries and Asian populations, it's 75% need corrective lenses so like the majority the majority so and and there's so many more people in asia than everywhere else so you can fairly say most human beings on this planet require corrective lenses yeah and so that right there should tell you there's something wrong with the eye but the the reason is well part of the reason is actually is that we're spending so much more time indoors as children so what we what they found is there's a pretty good correlation between needing eyeglasses and how much time you spent indoors as a kid. Interesting. Right? So what's happening is that if you're not looking at long distances for most of the day, every day, your eyeballs will will grow to be too long. Huh. So if you're mostly inside looking at medium and short distances, your eyeballs your your eyeballs grow to 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 uh, to maximize that. Of course, it, it overdoes it because even if you're inside, if you need glasses, you still need them when you're inside. Right, 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 right. right. So it's really a poor poor match there. But what's it, it, hunter gatherer tribes, for example? Yeah, picture our ancestors in the savanna of Africa. Right, it's like there's probably long distances right in front of their face all the time, all day, every day. We hadn't invented indoors yet. Right. right? So the, everything is outside, um, and so that we know that their rate of uh, of, uh, of needing eyeglasses would have been much less. We don't know what our ancestors were, but we can look at hunter-gatherer tribes today, and it's it's probably less than 15%, possibly less than 10% mm-hmm. that need eyeglasses. It's not zero, though. Yeah. And the fact that this can happen, to me, is still a flaw, that 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 just because you spend time inside right. means that you need eyeglasses and later. And it, it has to do with what you said before, how long or short the eyeball is, right? And so it's like the point, the way the light gets focused. Yes, exactly right. Because the lens is right in the front of the eye. And if the eyeball is too long, what happens is it focuses the light before it hits the retina, mm-hmm. and then it falls out of focus again by the time it hits the right. retina. Right, you have to find that perfect balance. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to focus right on the retina. Our vision's just not tip-top, but here's why, here's why I think our flaws are also stories of our greatness, is the fact that we could tolerate such poor eyes means in our, in our ancestry, you could survive and thrive even with poor eyesight, which means, to me, there were many ways to contribute. You could be valuable. You could be important in the social group in lots of different ways. So maybe you couldn't hunt, but you could be a homesteader. You could be a child rearer. You could be a gatherer. You could be a shaman, right? There were many ways to be important and, and therefore have your genes passed on. And I think that's, that's a good thing. So yeah. most of the flaws that I talk about have an upside. They have a spin. So if you look at my terrible eyes, that sounds like a flaw. But I, as I just told you, um, because of you know our higher cognitive abilities... 
I'm able to write a book, which I use the advance from to fix my eyes by having a doctor <laughs> who was equally trained, who shot lasers in my eye. And here I am. And somebody else invented that. Uh -huh, so uh -huh, so that's uh -huh. one of these, these things that becomes possible when you don't have to rely on a tip-top body um, to, be, to, be, to be okay. To, you can rely on these other things. I, I think that's a good thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact, I, and sometimes people ask me, are we more flawed than every other animal? Could you write a book like this with any species? And I would say that every animal has flaws, no doubt. But I, we might actually be more flawed in terms of our bodies yeah. than other creatures because we have these big brains, which label, which allowed us to sort of outsmart. Uh, to solve problems outside of the process of evolution. Exactly. So we we don't. Natural selection wouldn't get to us the same way it would if we were relying just on our bodies. Right. Um, I mean, our brains are part of our bodies, so it's it's a little bit of a semantic right, difference. Right. The, br the brains are part of the process of evolution, too, of course. That's right. But what happened was, so there's biological and genetic evolution, but there's also what we call cultural evolution. And what, what we were able to do is sort of move into that new phase where success and failure and strengths and weaknesses was based on the cultural conditions, not just the biological ones. Right. And so things like language and tools and, um, you know, uh, lifestyle and, and, and um, uh, whether it's inventions or, or, or how you interacted with nature, all these things started to matter more than your genetics. And we also know that even the way the brain works is, is, is by culture, not just by genetics. I mean, our mind springs from our brain but because of how we're treated as, an, as children, I mean, we learn to do all these things, reading, writing, um, even our emotions really come from the way that we were reared. So just the rules just don't apply to us in the yeah. same way, uh, which is a, a good place to be, I think, because life out under the conditions of natural selection is pretty harsh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's, uh, I, I think it's mostly a strength. I guess I want to finish up this episode by by looking at the big picture because that's what evolution is, right? It's big picture science that takes place across millions of years, and that's sort of the beauty and the mystery of the whole thing. Um, so, from that perspective, how do you think we should look at our bodies coming from the point of view of of a long a long view? Right. Well, I think the long view is the key. I mean, people say you must think the body, our bodies, are horrible and they're they're inefficient and they don't work very well. That's not what I'm saying at all. My book, the thesis of my book is not that our bodies are terrible. The thesis of my book is that our bodies have a past and they have an interesting past, a long past with, with turns and forks in the road. And like anything else, appreciating the past is key to understanding the present. Mm -hmm. So if we want to know why our bodies work the way they do, the best one, one important way to do that is to appreciate its past and how we got to this point. And then, of course, once you have a mastery of our past and how it informs the present, we can, I think, make better decisions about the future because we've got some pretty big decisions to make. Right. Um, if we're putting this in evolutionary terms, I don't think our species has ever been so threatened uh, as, as we are now, at yeah. least in the past, say, 30,000 years. Every, every threat that we now face is of our own making. If you imagine a cataclysm in our near future, uh, you imagine a pandemic, you imagine nuclear war, you imagine climate change, you imagine all these things that we created for ourselves. Right. And so we like to pat ourselves on the back and say our big brain is the ultimate in evolution. But what if it causes us to be, uh, you know, the cause of our own demise? Um, it might have been, it, there might be a reason that no other creatures evolved this enormous brain is that it could be as much of a hindrance as a benefit. Right. And if that's true, then the process of evolution will take care of that. It will continue. That's right. We, we are by no means at the end of this story. Yeah. 
Okay, I think that about does it for this episode of This World of Humans. I'm your producer, Sam Anderson. Our guest today was Nathan Lentz. His new book is called Human Errors, A Panorama of Glitches from Pointless Bones to Broken Genes. You can get it now online or at your local bookstore. It's really great. You should pick it up, and uh, he'll be back in this chair next week with a new episode. All right, can't wait to switch places again. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming on the show, Nathan. All right, thank you. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently supported by Vision Learning and the PSC CUNY Research Award Program at the City University of New York. Science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H.